The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Okay, our scripture passage is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 29. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This ends the reading of God's word. Thank you, Laura. Well, as you can see, that probably um, looked familiar. This is essentially the very same passage that uh, Abram McCorders preached here last Sunday. And by the way, in case you might have been wondering where I was uh, this last Sunday, I had the privilege of preaching at Brandywine Grace Church in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, where my uh, good friend, uh, Jason Russell, is a pastor. Some of you uh, may remember him. Uh, skinny guy with a really long beard. It's hard to miss the beard. Um, so, yeah, he's, over the course of time since we got started here in 2014, uh, 2014, I would say that Jason has preached here for us maybe three or four times, and I've never returned the favor. And um, he and his fellow Pastor Kenny have been giving me a hard time about it for quite some time. So I was just really glad to get out there and to uh, share with 
that congregation. I know that some of you were praying for me about that. I had asked for prayer. It's, it's a big church of a lot of unfamiliar faces, so a little intimidating for, for this guy. But um, I just want you to know, for those of you who might have been praying, that um, I really feel that God honored your prayers because it was, it was a really, really encouraging uh, time. I had, got a neat introduction from Jason, really thoughtful. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm likewise really glad that you all were able to hear from Abram last week preaching through this passage because I thought that um, he just did a truly excellent job, uh, that he just did us a great service, that it was very helpful, very um, uh, accessible, very um, applicable. And um, I would also have you all know that um, I always listen to Abram's messages, okay? Whether I'm here or not, I always listen to them. And I'm saying that because I did listen and I did hear his comment that he made in which he was chiding me. And so, Abram, if you're listening, Abram, if you're listening right now, I want you to know that I heard that and that I'm not going to respond to that. I'm going to be the better man, you know. I'm just going to let that, you know, let that 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 ride. Um, but uh, really, though, uh, in all sincerity, I really did um, appreciate what Abram had to share. I really liked his uh, trust fall illustration because I am from that era. Um, in fact, it was bringing up a lot of bad memories. Um, effective, uh, effective in the illustration, but not good memories. But in particular, I really liked the way that he framed this whole passage that we're going to be coming back through. So we planned on this. We planned for him to kind of take a particular angle through this passage and for me to take a particular angle. But um, what I liked is he began by acknowledging just how really tough this passage actually is um, and that for some of us it it could really uh, cause us to just tune out because it's, it's so dense. Um, I think that Abram was reading our minds, uh, some of us, when he said that. Uh, because Paul, he's just going very deep here. He's throwing out a lot of very involved theological, historical details. He's talking about, I mean, just think about it. He's talking about promises. He's talking about covenants. He's talking about an inheritance. He's going into this like historical chronology of events. He's throwing out words like annulled and ratified and intermediaries. Uh, I mean, I suppose if you're here this morning and maybe you're a lawyer or if you're a, his, a historian maybe, then like this is a dream passage for you. But for the rest of it, it's, it's kind of like, whoa, um, what, are we, what are we getting into here, uh, Paul? Um, you're speaking Greek to us, <laughs> which by the way, he was. He was, speaking, he was speaking Greek. And so as we prepare to take a second pass through on this, I just want to take a moment to help us with that, uh, similar to the way that Abram did, by just reminding us of the big idea of this entire letter, because there is one. that Paul does have something very particular in mind um, that I think will help us as we come into this. It'll help to clear the fog a little bit. Um, and so, you know, what is it? Well, um, and by the way, I, I, I think by having the big idea, 
uh, is you come to something like this, it can serve, almost, you know like when you put together a jigsaw puzzle, you know, you got like this big pile of puzzle pieces and it's kind of like, whoa, like especially when you get started, you haven't done anything yet, it's just kind of like, whoa. But then you set up that box and you got that image and you're like, okay, all right, we can do this. I know where I'm going now. You know, I, I can see where this thing is all leading. Um, I, I, I think that having the big idea of the letter can help us in moments like these. You know, without that clear, full image as a point of reference, it's hard to make sense of anything. You can look and you can see where it's all leading when you've got the big picture. It's key. So here's the big picture from Paul. From the word go, and you may already know this, but I'm going to just, you know, stick with Paul in reminding you of it every single week. Um, the big picture is the gospel of grace. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what this, this letter is all about. Um, without question, that is, is the core concern of the letter. It's the big picture. And sometimes he's communicating to us this gospel in ways that are very clear for us, ways that are very practical, very relevant in nature. And at other times, he's teaching us about this gospel in ways that are very deep and very wide and very far. And as challenging as that may be for us, I think that that should actually encourage us a great deal because it confirms for us what many people tell us about the gospel itself, that it's all of those things that I just mentioned, it's, it's, it's clear, it's accessible, it's practical, and yet it's also very thorough. It's surprisingly deep. It's vast in all of its applications. It has relevance for all manners of life. Nothing is beyond its scope. And if this is true, then it's, it, at times it's going to come with some complexity. And Paul right here, I think what he's doing um, in this passage, is panning out to help us take in more, to help us to take in more of the big picture. And coming back to my jigsaw puzzle illustration, it's almost as if he's providing us here with like the edge pieces, okay? Sometimes when you're looking, you're working on a puzzle, you know, um, we tend to, you know, just hone in on little little bits. You know, you you, you find a, a, a color, you find a particular pattern, you go off to the side, somebody else is doing the same thing over here. Um, but right here, it's as if he's giving us some of the framework, like the edges. He's giving us some of the framework, the origins of the gospel. And if I was going to give a name to those edges, this, this framed-in section that we've got here, I would give it the name Promise, Okay promise. When Paul thinks of the gospel in a historical and theological way, when he traces it back in time, he thinks of the word promise. In fact, he mentions it nine times in this passage that Laura just read for us. Promise. So we're going to run with that this morning. Um, three things for us as we do so as it pertains to promise. First thing, we're going to consider the particulars of the promise. So, you know, what does Paul have in mind when he uses this term? How does he trace it back in time? Secondly, we're going to consider the problem behind the promise. And then lastly, we'll consider the power of the promise. So one more time on that. The particulars of the problem, of the promise, the, the problem behind the promise, and the power of the promise. So to begin with, the particulars of the promise. 
to get into the particulars on it, we've got to look at uh, Abraham, okay? Uh, the popcorn trail that Paul is uh, setting up for us uh, leads us back to, to, to Abraham. Uh, that's where it's at. The, 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 this talk of offspring, blessing, promise, it all seems to begin, you'll notice, with Abraham. And so, you know, where do we need to look to find some of these edge pieces? If we're going to, like, take a trip, you know, into the past, where do we know, need to go? And I would say the first place to go, without a doubt, is Genesis uh, chapter 12. For those of you who've been around, uh, and if you, if you have a Bible with you, please feel free to uh, open up to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to be looking uh, somewhere beginning at verse 1. But, I mean, many of you will remember uh, many moons ago that we worked through um, the book of Genesis. And as we did so, this was like one of these like critical passages that we came back to again and again and again. Um, at, at this point in the narrative here, Abraham, that Paul's talking to us about, is referred to as Abram, and God speaks to him. This is how uh, chapter 12 of Genesis begins. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And now get this part because this is very critical. And in you, Abram, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God tells him. And then Abram sets out into the unknown. I mean... What a wild experience for him. In other words, what God, I think, is saying to Abraham here is, your, through, through your offspring, Abraham, through your line, through your lineage, a blessing will somehow come to all the earth. And so there's your promise. So the particular is the promise. There's the promise. And we should ask specifically, what is the blessing that is being promised here? What is it? Well, look at verse 16 in the passage that we've got in front of us from Galatians. What does it say? It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so in other words, and this may be obvious, but I, I'm making it as plain as I possibly can here. The promised blessing that's being talked about here in Galatians chapter uh, 3, the, the, the blessing that is spoken of in Genesis chapter 12, and yet again, even more explicitly in Genesis chapter 15. And then if you just keep going through Genesis, it just keeps coming up again and again. This blessing, this promised seed is in reference to, Paul's telling us, Jesus. It's in reference to Jesus who would one day come through the lineage, the line of Abraham. And this is what Abraham heard from God. And Abraham then took God at his word on this, even though it was not very explicit to him at the time. At that time, it was vague, right? And he trusted God with that, that, that little bit that God shared with him. And this act of faith and of trust was accredited to Abraham, we're told, as righteousness, all right? This is the legacy of Abraham, his faith, his trust. 
And as Paul points out here, this all came about 430 years before the law, the Mosaic law was ever even introduced. So um, these are just, you know, some of the particulars here as it relates to this word promise that is used again nine times in our passage. Well, what else? What else would be helpful for us to know about this word promise? Well, ch- you know, check this out. This is interesting. I think it's interesting. Hopefully you will as well. Um, here is a thread of connection that we can make between this word promise and Paul's big picture discussion that he's got us on about the gospel, okay? A thread of connection. So we said that Paul is speaking Greek to us. He, he, he was speaking Greek. In case you may not know this, the Greek word for gospel is uh, evangelion. There it is. I had to slow down with that before I spit it out. Evangelion, okay? Um, William Tyndale, who is credited as uh, being the first um, individual to translate the Bible into the English language, um, he was an English linguist uh, in the 1500s. Here's how he described this word, evangelion, all right? Evangelion, that we call the gospel, is a Greek word and signifies good, this is like my, one of my it's got to be on like my top five list of, of like favorite descriptions of the gospel. This is excellent. Signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings and makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Don't you like that? I love that. So um, that's in reference to the gospel, Evangelion. Now, what does that have to do with the word Promise. You're probably wondering, like, okay, what's, what's the connection? Where's the thread? Um, good question. The Greek term for this word promise is epangelion. Very similar, right? Almost sounds exactly the same. Uh, well, what's the difference? Here's a bit of a definition of epangelion. Nothing too surprising. Nothing too unexpected, I don't think. It refers to a divine promise of blessing. And nearly every time that you come across this in the New Testament, it's almost always referring back to the Old Testament. In other words, Epangelion is God's promise of eventual blessing. God's promise of gladness of heart. God's promise to cause individuals from all nations of the earth to sing and to leap for joy and to dance in merriment. Okay? Um, It's the promise that that will one day come to pass. And Evangelion is God making good on that promise. You understand? You seeing the connection between promise and gospel? Because again, gospel means, so that's the, that was the promise. Gospel means, we've talked about this many times, good news. It's news. It's, it's, the, it's the, the reporting of news. Because it's something that's already happened, right? It isn't something that is yet to happen. It's already happened. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. Abraham experienced it as a promise. He saw it from a distance. He trusted that, unlike us, that when God makes a promise, he'll make good on his promise so that it was just like money in the bank, as they say, in Abraham's mind. So Abraham experienced it as a good but vague and yet to be fulfilled promise. And for us here this morning, for those of us who know it, 
we're able to see it and to experience it as a vivid and fully accomplished reality in Christ. Okay? Promise, fulfillment. Both pertaining to the big picture of the gospel um, that Paul is doggedly sharing with us. So those are some of the particulars of the promise. Those are some of the edge pieces, if you will. Um, hopefully they're beginning to lock into place for us as, as we continue to move along here. So that's all good and exciting, right? Leaping, dancing. Now for the problem, okay? The problem behind the promise. The very fact that there is a promise in place should alert us to the fact that there may be a problem if we're thinking about it the right way, right? Because without problems, we really don't need promises. I don't think so. I can't really think of a scenario. I was think I'll, I'll just I'll walk you through this. So so um, worst case scenario, we get ourselves into trouble. Uh, what do we do? We feel inclined to make promises, right? Like, man, I'm sorry, I forgot to wash the dishes, mom. I promise. I'll you know, I'll wash them twice this week. You know. So, I'm sorry I forgot your birthday. I promise I'll make it up to you. Right? It's like problems connected to promises. Uh, however, like even like the best kinds of promises that we make, if we really slow down with them and we think about them, there's problems connected to those too. Uh, like what's, what's more special of a promise than like wedding vows, making wedding vows to one another? But even those like have like a problematic shadow attached to them what do we say we say for richer for poor in sickness and in health till death do us part why do we say that like what, what's I'll, I'll stick with you what, why do we say that like what is motivating those kinds of promises and it's the potential of trouble you know, if things had never gone wrong in these kinds of situations, we wouldn't be making these kinds of vows. We wouldn't be making these kinds of promises. Sorry to be such a downer about, like, one of our greatest celebrations. But, you know, the, the idea is that, well, other marriages have ended badly, and I just might run ours, you know, off the rails. And, well, so before God and, and God help me and before all these people, um, I vow to not do that. Do you trust me? Will you say yes? Do you see? If you ever attend a wedding, by the way, that I may be officiating, just um, maybe forget some of those things that I just said. But not all of them, though, because it, it's a real problem. It's a real situation. We've got a problem. This is why we need a promise that is greater than any promise that we can make. Hopefully you're seeing this. Looking at this passage, the confusing part about all of this, to me anyhow, is when Paul starts talking about the law as it relates to the promise. Like, what is the relationship between these two things? What's the deal here? In fact, Paul, I think he anticipates, we're trying to get into the problem um, itself, Paul anticipates our confusion about this connection between the law and the promise. You could see this in verse 19. You probably noticed it. He says, why, why then the law? If, if the law came later, why then the law? He's told us that the promise came before the law. He's told us that the introduction of the law doesn't in any way cancel out the promise. It can't do that. The promise still stands. And so why the law? Why was the law introduced in the first place? This is the question that he's bringing up. 
Why then the law? And then he says this, still in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin, until the offspring should come, referring to Christ, you see. Well, what might he mean by that? What might he mean when he says that it was added because of sin until Christ would come? What does he mean by that? Here are just a few thoughts on this. I'm going to, you know, you could, you could think of the, the Ten Commandments as we talk about this, perhaps. A phrase that I often use uh, with my kids is, you don't know unless you know. You don't know unless you know. Because sometimes my older kids, they'll hear... Um, one of my younger kids say something like, um, uh, they'll hear one of the younger kids, kids say, like, I don't, I don't understand, I've never heard of that, or I, I don't understand that. And they'll be like, like, seriously? You don't, know, you don't know about that? Like, you don't understand that? And I just, I have to say to them, uh, well, hey, listen, there was a time when you didn't know about that either. There was a time when you didn't understand that either, because you don't know unless you know. Like, somebody's got to show you. Somebody's got to teach you, Right? Somebody has to tell you. And that's how the law is actually described here. It's described as a teacher, as a kind of educator. It informs us. You can see it there beginning in verse 23. Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. And again, he's talking about Christ there, the object of our faith. Now check out verse 24. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that he might, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, when I read this word guardian, it kind of, it catches me off guard a little bit because um, for, for myself, I, reading the Bible, I really cut my teeth on the 1977 version of the New American Standard Bible, okay? And, and it's put differently there. It sounds a lot different. I'm going to read it for you because this, this is just kind of like hardwired on my brain anytime I look at this passage. This is how it's rendered. Therefore, the law has become, not our guardian, the law has become our tutor, it says, to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The King James Version calls it the schoolmaster, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ. Has anyone here ever had a tutor growing up? Did you guys? You probably don't even want to admit it, do you? I don't. Man, I hated having a tutor. I had plenty of them, believe me. It's embarrassing, right? Um, it's not that there was anything wrong with them, by the way. They, I, like, to, to, my experience is that tutors were um, always, uh, you know, they were helpful. They were just trying to help you out. They were encouraging and these sorts of things. But even the way that I just described tutor right there, it doesn't get at, at this. It, it doesn't. Because the word that Paul is using here, it refers to this cultural reality that was happening at this time in, in the world. In the Roman, in, in, uh, in Roman and Greek, if you uh, were born into like a higher class family and you were a boy, you were appointed a servant. Okay, and this servant was with you at all times, and their responsibility was to train you up in education in your moral life. All right, and they—it wasn't like you know a tutor who like brings you a cup of cocoa and gives you like gold star stickers every time you're like you know doing well. No, like they—they they were 
disciplinarians. They were severe, you might even say. Um, they were always there. They were always there to correct you and to redirect you. Always there to call you out. Always, you know, just kind of, uh-uh-uh, you know, nope. Like, get off to this side, get off to that side. They're like, nope. Just constantly correcting you. And this is how Paul's describing the law. This is what the law does. It's not a, like we have to understand, the law is not a living thing. It can't bring you life, but it can educate you. It lets you know. It makes you aware. It makes you aware of who God is. makes you aware of his holiness, his standards, what he's like. It makes you aware of who you are and how you actually fail to meet those same standards, that you don't reflect that same character. It holds up a mirror is, I think, probably one of the best ways to think about it, that the law kind of is this mirror. It reflects back to you what's really going on. That you're under a curse is one of the things that it shows you. It makes you aware of your true condition, your true situation. This is why Paul uses this language of captivity and imprisonment. Maybe you notice that. Because the law is there not to offer you a nice sticker, but to condemn you, actually. And what I'm about to say next is probably going to be confusing based on what I just said. The law was given to us by God is an act of grace to us. You say, well, wait, what? How could that be? This is what Paul's telling us here. Why then the law? I mean, he's saying it. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. The law has become our tutor. Why? To lead us to Christ. That we may be justified, and I'm going to add in my own little words here, not by the law, but by faith. You see? Often we struggle to see the law in the ways that I just described it. Here's just one example. I could give many of them, but I'll, I'll just give you one. So, guys, we, our, our last uh, men's dinner together, I left that night and was driving home. Mike, you saw, you, I saw you after this happened to me. And I was driving home, and I was almost home, and I got pulled over, all right? This thing was like the second time in two weeks I got pulled over. I'm just like, what's going on? And I got, I, I got pulled over. The officer informed me that I had uh, one of my rear license plate lights was out, okay? Um, they asked for my uh, license, my registration, went back to the car, left me sitting there for about 10 or 15 minutes. It's late. It's been a long day. I'm just like, come on, man. Like, you're telling me I got one of my two rear license plate lights out? And I hope nobody knows this individual. Um, like, come on, you know? Like, this is, this is lame. This is petty. You're wasting my time, bub, you know? I mean, this is, these are, I'm just inviting you into the way that I was actually thinking about it. Um, and I was just irritated, right? And we can, we can see God's law in this way, I'm afraid. That we can see it as this, like, petty thing. That, like, it, like an irritant. It is, is um, unnecessary, is over the top, is, is, is trivial or something like that. And in that way, we can fail to recognize just how seismic the actual problem truly is. That at bottom, we are lawless. 
But we don't see that. We just think, come on, man, I just got a, I just got a rear license plate light out. Why, I, I'm trying. But the problem is seismic. That at bottom, you know, our natural disposition is that we want to be a law unto ourselves, and we don't want anybody imposing their perspectives on us. We don't want somebody trying to tell us what to do, or how dare they tell us that we're going about things the wrong way. Or it can be very subtle, actually. It can be very subtle and mixed up. We can take the law itself. So this is another example. This is kind of taking it in a different direction just to try to illustrate just how deep the problem is and just how complex the problem is. We can take the law of God and we can try to leverage it to get God on our side. This is a completely different angle. We can take the law, try to leverage it as a way of getting God on our side, trying to force his hand to bless us. You know, one of the best ways that I've heard this described is comparing it to a vending machine. You know how this works, right? Like you, you come to the vending machine, you pop your, it's just like, okay, 75 cents for my favorite candy bar. I, you put in the 75 cents, the candy bar is supposed to drop. It doesn't. You get mad. You start shaking the vending machine. You start kicking the vending machine. You owe me, vending machine. I gave you my, I did, the, I did what you said. I put in my 75 cents. You owe me. Let's go. And we can do the same thing with God. God, I'm doing my part. I'm keeping the rules. I'm being civilized. I'm meeting up to your laws. For the most part, anyway. I mean, I'm doing it better than these jokers over here. You, you owe me. Like, things ain't going the way that they're supposed to go in my life right now. Like, what's up? you got to keep your end of the bargain. This is the way that we can, we can have a relationship with God's law. We try to leverage the law for a blessing. And this could not be more ironic. Because meanwhile, God is trying to use the law in our lives to show us, to reveal to us, that we're actually under a curse. It's trying to show us reality. The law, he's trying to use the law to show us that we're under a curse, that we stand condemned, that we're in desperate trouble on our own so that we might recognize the gracious blessing of Christ and freely come to him and freely experience the, the real blessing, which is him. I mean, this is what, what Paul's saying. The law is a tutor to what? To lead us, to bring us to him. This makes me think of, I mean, a great illustration of this is the rich young ruler, right? He's, he's just like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, essentially, how are you doing with the Ten Commandments? He's essentially like, doing pretty good, actually. And Jesus says, you lack just this one thing. Sell everything that you have and come follow me. And he went away disappointed. What was Jesus really saying to him? You lack one thing. Me. This, this stuff, it's supposed to lead you to me. That's the upshot here. Me. Here's another one. I mean, you can't illustrate this stuff better than the Bible. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18. Listen to this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, 
standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's he saying? He's saying, don't you see, God, I'm one of your, I'm one of your star pupils, you know? Like, where's my sticker? Unlike this joker over here, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting up. I'm meeting up to your law. I'm doing pretty good. This is a parable from Jesus, by the way, right? What does Jesus say next? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and here's Jesus' breakdown. I tell you, this man went down to his house, the man who was beating his chest, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, made right, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the, hum the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The law is meant to lead us to Christ. It's, it's meant to lead us into to reality, right? Lastly, now the power of the promise. The, the problem with the law is that we just completely misunderstand it. The problem with the law is that it's powerless. We think that it possesses power to do things for us that it can't do. Okay? It's lifeless. It cannot provide life for you. It cannot save you. It cannot impart life to you. It can only point you to the source of true power and true life. Listen to this insight from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. This is written in the midst of civil, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. This is, a, this is very helpful. He says, It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me, he says. Do you get, I mean, do you, like, if you get underneath what he's saying, do you understand what he's trying to tell us? The law can reveal my problem. It may even, in some way, restrain me, but it cannot resolve my problem. It can't help me. In knowing that, God has provided a resolution in his son. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You are all children of God. You are all sons and daughters of God. How? Through faith, Paul tells us. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've clothed yourselves in Christ. Jesus met every requirement of the law of God perfectly for you. He became a curse for you in order that you might know the blessing of God. I love the way that John Calvin puts this. By his own descent to the earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven. 
Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having, uh, having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, held captive, imprisoned, he has clothed us with his righteousness. I mean, just try to like think about what the situation is, especially in the context of, of this letter. So what are our options here? You've got the harsh schoolmaster of the law over here, and you've got Christ over here, right? I mean, just try to imagine this if you could. I just, I just love the, this, this illustration every time I come across it in the Bible where it talks about, about this new identity that we can receive in Christ being something like a garment, this robe of righteousness that is, I mean, I'm not trying to manipulate anyone right now in doing this, and you don't have to play along with me if you don't want, but just close your eyes for a minute if, 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 if you're willing to just trust me for a moment. And just think about this, okay? All of your burdens, all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your inability to meet up to the law of God, all of the condemnation that gets whispered into your ears, and just imagine this big blanket, this big garment just coming around you and just wrapping all the way around you and just communicating to you finality. It's done. It's finished. You're secure. This is what Paul is talking about. You can open your eyes now if you'd like. You can keep them close if you want. Just don't, no snoring out there. This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, guys, guys, come on. You, you're going to go back to the schoolmaster? Is that what you guys are trying to tell me? That you want to go back to that law nipping at your heels? When you had this? Really? Are you sure? Why go back? And it's beautiful the way that he ends. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is not, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This whole letter, he's trying to address all these distinctions, you know, like the Jews and the Gentiles, and like, we're of the law, and you need to be a part of the law too, and, and if, if you want to roll with us, you got to roll in this particular way. And Paul's just like, come on. Enough. No more distinctions, guys. No more distinctions. This is a whole new thing. Your identity is in him. That's the only distinguishing thing about you if you know him, is that you belong to him and you're one in him. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You're true sons of Abraham. Because what was Abraham? He was a man of faith. He, trust, he took God at his word. He said, God's got the promise I need. And he's going to make it happen. The law can't do it for, for you. Love is the only... Alexander McLaren, English minister from the 1800s. Love is the only fire. Love is the only fire that is hot enough to melt the iron obstinacy 
of a creature's will. The law won't do that. It doesn't possess the power to change you, to change your heart. Only the love of Christ can do that. Hopefully, I'm going to pray in a minute, but hopefully the puzzle pieces, you know, like as the puzzle, you keep popping the pieces in, it just starts coming more and more into focus. Hopefully that's what's happening for us, that this is coming more and more into focus as we work through this letter because I just think there's so much here. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you um, have made a way in which we no longer have to wrestle in captivity and imprisonment under the demands of the law, fighting for our lives, but that you, the spotless Lamb of God, perfectly met every requirement of your own law. For you alone are holy. You alone are worthy of our praise. God, I pray that as we continue on in this time of worship that we could feel the weight of that robe of righteousness resting on our our shoulders. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.